0: Hey, everybody. My name is Justin Murphy, and this is my podcast. It's called Other Life because it's where I talk about all the things I don't get to talk about in normal life. So if you're into it, you should definitely subscribe. And if you'd like to talk to other people interested in what I'm interested in or ask me questions or request future topics or guests, please just follow the link in the show notes. Finally, I just want to give a huge thanks to all the donors and patrons. I could not keep this podcast running without financial backers, so I'm very grateful. And I would just say that if you enjoy this podcast or my blog or my videos, please do consider signing up to give a little bit of money each month. It would really help me grow out this project, and it would mean a lot to me. So thanks a lot. Now, on to the podcast. Over and out.
1: So today on this live stream, we're going to talk about the psychology of Antifa, um, far-left radical protesters. Um, they've gotten a lot of news lately because uh, independent journalist Andy Noe was attacked in Portland by some Antifa people. There's been a lot of activity on, on Twitter and Facebook, all over social media. A lot of people speculating about who Antifa are, what their motives and goals are, how that culture operates. And a lot of that speculation, I think, is not very evidence-based. So today in this live stream, um Me, Jeffrey Miller, is going to talk with a veteran Antifa uh, protester, Justin Murphy, who then became a professor of political science and is now an independent scholar. So uh welcome, Justin. Thanks, Jeffrey. <laughs> I think, you know, what's on a lot of people's minds is who are Antifa? Where do they come from? So maybe tell me a little bit about your your journey just to ground this, just to be based, and how you got into that movement in the first place. Yeah, sure. And then we can kind of follow up with some uh, more general questions about the movement's goals, objectives, personality, um, attitudes towards power, attitudes towards violence, all of that stuff. So how did it start for you?
2: Sure. I'd be happy to tell you all about it. I would start by clarifying something you said at the beginning when you introduced me because you put it in the past tense. And I would say that I'm still Antifa. I mean, I still think there's a lot to defend in kind of the anti-fascist attitude and, and the practices of anti-fascism when applied to actual fascism. So that would be my qualification. I think that what what you're seeing today is the targets of anti-fascism being expanded to a ridiculous and indefensible degree. But the basic tenets of fascism, I still stand by. There were Nazis marching. anti Yeah. <laughs> Did I say? Yeah. <laughs> Already in slip, my critics will say. But uh, if there were actual Nazis walking down the streets of Albuquerque, I would block up and go uh, meet them where they're at. And, you know, I think able-bodied men should actually be prepared to engage in physical community self-defense against actual fascist physical threats. Uh, And so that basic logic, I still believe in, and I I would still identify with that. So that's just to clarify, I'm not presenting myself here as an ex-Antifa necessarily. But maybe as a based Antifa, a <laughs> kind of reasonable Antifa, I, I am happy to represent that angle. And so to get to your question about my own experience or whatever, I'll just give you the, the quick and dirty story, I suppose. I I really came up through Occupy Wall Street is when I really got politically radicalized. And the culture of Occupy Wall Street was, uh, I would say, significantly overlapped with the the cultures of Antifa. I met a lot of uh, proper kind of militant anti-fascists through Occupy. And that's how I kind of got uh, somewhat acculturated into the norms and practices of what people now see in the news of, you know, black bloc and militant anti-fascism. But actually in the U.S., it's not as popular and widespread per capita as it is in Europe yeah. for the obvious reason that Nazism and forms of you know more traditional proper fascism were more prevalent and kind of closer to home in countries such as the U.K.
1: So you ha- you have experience both with America yeah. and Antifa, but also you lived in Britain. For several years. Um, yeah. And right. you had some experience there. As yeah, that's well. right. So, so I
2: got introduced to Antifa and got kind of socialized into it a little bit in the US in the Occupy days. But then it was when I moved to England, where I lived for the past six years, that I really got active with anti fascism because it's much more prevalent there. The culture is more. Uh, People in just general, in general, people in the UK, radical leftists in the UK and in Europe more broadly, anti-fascism is just a more familiar idea. And so there were more people involved in it. The local anti-fascist groups were very active and I was looking for interesting radical politics to get involved in. And Antifa was actually um, one of the more lively and interesting, attractive forms of activism for me at the time. Now, when I moved to England, I was much more kind of I would say I was much more headlong into various ideologies of radical leftism, many of which I've moved away from in in a critical way. But my basic kind of radical left wing politics hasn't really changed. And my basic interest in fighting fascism where fascism actually exists hasn't changed. So, um, however, yeah, basically as, as as the anti-fascist movement has kind of become increasingly ridiculous, at least it's public face. Uh, yeah, I've I've obviously kind of I uh, step back a little bit to reflect on what the frick is actually going on with with these people and, and kind of the new waves of anti fascism. But basically, I mean, I've i I've, I've blocked out many times that that's kind of like the l- lingo for black block, which you see in the news. And I've you know, I, I've, I've engaged in fisticuffs with fascists uh, in the streets of England many times. And uh, to this day, I mean, a lot of the people that I worked with in anti-fascism who I won't say anything about because, you know, it's a it's a, it's a very, you know, um, what they call security culture is, is very big. You know, you don't talk about names. You don't say anything that would out anyone's identity because it's all very private. I mean, I'm pretty public as a person. I don't mind saying that I've been involved in anti-fascism. nothing to hide personally, but a lot of people are very sensitive about that. So I'm not going to, you know, Go into any details that would put any person's identity into jeopardy, because I still have a lot of respect and and even admiration for some of the more you know noble and and uh, honest sincere anti fascists out there. But basically, now I move back to the U.S. and my sense of uh, you know anti fascism in the U.S. is that it's it's really where the the ridiculousness is really getting amped up. And so now that I'm living here in Albuquerque, uh, I'm I'm not particularly embedded in any anti fascist groupie souls. <laughs> so that, that's basically my my quick and dirty story,
1: I guess. Well, one thing I noticed in, in Britain, where I also lived for nine years, is there seemed to be quite a bit of overlap between the psychology of the sort of football hooligans and the people who supported different sports teams and the kind of psychology of Antifa versus sort of the British far right in terms of the way the street battles kind of get organized and launched and the kind of long running antipathy that some groups have against others, even that certain individuals have against others on the other side. So, could you talk a little bit about sort of antifa versus fa as a kind of sport, a team sport versus a kind of political movement? Sure,
2: yeah. Well, the first thing you have to understand about antifascism and the psychology of antifascism is that militant antifa is fun as hell it's basically war games with often relatively low stakes there's often fisticuffs there's sometimes throwing projectiles so people do often get hurt but it's a relatively small minority of individuals in these antifa battles that actually do get hurt it's relatively easy to stay out of actual danger if you don't (coughs) want to you kind of just hang back so you actually do have a lot of control over how much danger you really want to put yourself in And so the stakes are relatively controllable and relatively small, but you get to be part of a a, a war gang, basically a a kind of warrior tribe where you wear scary looking costumes. Nobody knows who you are underneath your costume. And you're in this large, ungovernable mass that is fighting for justice. I mean, there's, there's hardly anything more fun or exciting than that basic activity, especially I think for young men who often don't, you know, we have certain instincts, if you will, that don't really have much outlet otherwise. So to answer your question, I, I mean in my own personal experience and of course this is an n of 1. I'm, I'm I don't want to extrapolate too much from my own experience, but I suspect my experience was relatively average. Um so so I doubt I'm the only one to whom this would apply, but in in my experience of Antifa, the the joy and excitement and just the sheer fun of participating in this kind of warrior tribe for righteousness is extremely fun and intrinsically satisfying energizing and yeah so i would say for me personally being perfectly honest a majority of the the impetus or motivation psychologically is the the intrinsic fun and excitement and 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 the pride and the 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 energy that one gets from fighting for a uh, a righteous cause and engaging in you know daring physically challenging uh confrontation so i would say that's a that's a majority of the actual psychological motivation um the politics i think is i don't want to dismiss it totally but i do think that it actually kind of comes second to, but but then again my personal position is that actually building communities and participating in radical autonomous political communities is a kind of politics. So prioritizing the fun of it, the, the kind of warrior, the, the shared warrior tribe fighting for, fighting for justice. And that all of those intrinsic psychological joys, that is a kind of politics in its own right. I, I think, you know, I think a lot of Antifa sort of believe in cultivating those types of it's because what it's ultimately about is building autonomous communities that can defend themselves. And so I wouldn't, when I say this, I'm not dismissing the politics I'm just saying that like most political reasoning, you know, it's it's motivated reasoning. It's like the the psychological joys and first order intrinsic benefits tend to do most of the motivating work and then the political gloss kind of comes after. Yeah. I and so I think that that's certainly true with with Antifa, but I don't think that even necessarily undermines it. I think it's just <clears throat> that's trying to be honest about what what's really going on under the hood.
1: So it's kind of a team combat sport to some degree with kind of ritualized rules that often both sides kind of understand tacitly, particularly in Britain, right? That's right. That was a clearer set of norms about who do you go after? And it's typically like the Antifa guys in black bloc versus the far right guys, but you don't sort of fuck with journalists or bystanders.
2: That's right. I think a dirty little secret of Antifa culture is that anti-fascists hate the fascists. But it's actually more like a love-hate relationship. Like any situation where you are highly invested in defeating some kind of enemy, there's always a kind of latent uh, ambivalence to it, right? This is actually a very kind of Freudian idea, right? If you, I mean, if you really hate someone in, su- in some sense, you're actually kind of obsessed with them, you, you know? You actually really do care about them. And I think you see that very clearly in in Antifa culture, like in my experience with Antifa, when when again i have to be very careful because i don't want to out anyone and i don't and i don't want to be seen as like a narc or a snitch or something like that because i'm not i'm trying to share honestly the the psychology behind it and and how it works in a way that that i think can help everyone understand things better across the aisle if you will so but what i would say is that when you're actually doing and organizing militant anti-fascist actions People do anti, anti fascists have a sense of who the enemies are. Who are, who are the people that are going to be there on the day that the fascists that is, they're going to be fighting. And they've often, they know them from previous scuffles and previous street battles and to the point of actually there being quite a lot of personal feuds. And it actually does become a kind of sports like game, just like sports teams visit each other. You know, sometimes it's the home team, sometimes it's the away team. They have recurring battles over, you know, uh, the course of. Several weeks or seasons, the anti-fascist rhythm is is very much like that, and it does. It it did often strike me as uh, as uncomfortable this fact because it ultimately what what it points to is the possibility that ultimately the fascists and the anti-fascists are pretty much involved. Sometimes involved in their own kind of uh, private game, and the and the actual larger political purposes sometimes seem to be quite, quite secondary. And and that, that was, you know, something that I've expressed, that's a criticism I've expressed within anti-fascism. And, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not shy to express that in public.
1: Yeah. So let's talk about some of the stereotypes of Antifa. One stereotype you often get is, well, either all the folks in Antifa are sort of weak, little beta soy boys who, like, can't succeed in life at all and can't find mates and take out their frustrations on political enemies. The opposite stereotype is Antifa is entirely a bunch of homicidal psychopaths who just dress up in black blocks so that they can inflict violence on others with no like ideals or point to it at all. Um, I suspect the reality is in between, or maybe there's a lot of individual differences within Antifa um so you know contrary to the kind of soy boy stereotype like you train jujitsu and you have done for years and you're really into mma and like you mentioned within the far left antifa are kind of the elite praetorians or they're viewed as Mm. relatively high status compared to run-of-the-mill protesters is that accurate
2: it's complicated in fact to a lot of protesters, Antifa are the devil. Okay. So there's a certain type of radical left-wing activist protester. I would say probably the median radical lefty who goes to demonstrations mm-hmm. generally looks down on Antifa. Mm-hmm. But they're, prob- they're, they're troublemakers, they're troublemakers, their problems, they're gonna get the cops yeah. brought on. And uh within activist, within the radical left activist milieus, the, there's a long-standing Kind of antagonism between the kind of more moderate, normal left wing protester and and the militant anti fascist. They actually are constantly at loggerheads. Now, within a certain faction, though, of the radical left, the, yeah, sure, the the more mil- within the militant wings of the radical left activists, Antifa are definitely seen with a certain particular nobility and And kind of radical radicalism and a willingness to kind of put their bodies on the line this kind of yeah. aesthetic and 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 honor if you will to some degree so yeah it's it's quite it's quite variegated. I would say in response to your question about are we talking about you know kind of athletic warrior alpha males versus you know soy boy uh types of of of, of beta bros who can't get their life mm-hmm. together? what is the actual Breakdown. I would say that the breakdown is probably not too dissimilar from the general population's breakdown on this front. You know, it's a large mass of of people. Uh, I would say black bloc is uh, disproportionately male for sure. But there are a fair number of women who, who, who black bloc and, and engage in militant antifascism. But it's definitely disproportionately male. I would say there's a small minority of anti-fascists in the West who actually take it very seriously physically and they train regularly. There are anti-fascist training um, practices and some communities that they'll, you know, they'll meet regularly to practice street fighting and stuff like that. I've done it myself actually. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, my, the majority, the overwhelming majority of Antifa are not especially powerful, athletic yeah. fighting forces, I would say with no disrespect to, uh, to them.
1: And I mean the majority young people aren't the majority of everybody isn't right. So if you selectively display, like these are the faces of Antifa or, you know, these are the faces of the proud boys, either direction, you can always find examples of fairly pathetic looking humans. And you can also find examples of heroic looking people. Sure. So the selective presentation here, I think is a big problem for people understanding um, what's actually going on. And, Um, So you actually met your, we can talk about this. You met your wife as part of the kind of radical left, right? Kind of.
2: I wouldn't say I met her through the radical left, but we were both uh, kind of deep, headlong, radical left activist types, yeah.
1: Yeah. And now you're happily, monogamously married, and um, your wife's awesome. And the, the, the stereotype that the Antifa, you know, are all incels and all, all sexually frustrated and can't attract women. Um, what's your take on that? Is the, like, what do you, a, what young man in, in the left ever go? Well, shit, you know, I should join Antifa because then I'll level up my status. I'll be a bad boy. You know, I'll get more attention. Mm. Or is that a fairly rare motive?
2: Basically you're asking, is Antifa a mating strategy for some people? Just, to,
1: yeah. Just, I mean, you know me, I do yeah, I yeah. most right. virtue signaling is a mating strategy and most political activity by people who aren't actually policy wonks or politicians as kind of a right. status seeking right. mating activity. So that's not to derogate it. It's
0: yeah, for the, sure. Of course. Yeah. 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 And,
2: and I think because these things are so common, that pattern is so common. Of, of course, there's some of that going on for sure. I think, if you are embedded in radical left wing circles, you're a young single man, you know one way to show off your physical prowess your courage and your you know you know your dedication to to the righteous cause is mm-hmm. by yeah engaging in fisticuffs with Nazis or you know whoever is being called nazi uh, you know for at the moment so yeah no doubt there I, there's definitely an element or dimension of that i would say i don't it's a good question as to how how prevalent is that motivation. My sense is that for a lot of people, the the more typical case is that it's an outlet and an opportunity for it's a kind of identity for uh, relatively disaffected young men and and especially uh, bored young men. This yeah. is why my initial point was important about the fun of it. I mean, look, I I did it when I was a I was as a professor. I mean, uh, in large part because my life was so fucking boring. Yeah, I mean. I, I wasn't doing anything interesting or physically challenging or cool or badass or you know, I.
1: I, I So you might be literally grading term papers and go, I, I just need to like do something different than definitely and live, oh, live in my brain and and direct political action is
0: hell very yeah. Attra- yeah hell yeah hell yeah
2: definitely. I mean, modern life is extremely boring, especially for men who have you know we do have these instincts and, and drives and and desires to engage in challenging, risky, difficult courage requiring physical behaviors and shows of, of of both intellectual and physical strength and and moving your body in, in creative, powerful ways on the streets against cops and fascists. I mean, it really does satisfy a, a, a deep longing that is not really easy to satisfy in any other aspect of, of modern life. And frankly, in its defense, I would also add that it's relatively innocuous way of doing it. Right. It's it's certainly better than becoming a mass shooter or, you know, hunkering down into like resentful uh, incel communities where you just like rag on women all day, you know, these sorts of things. So, you know, usually it's that's right. That's right. That's right.
1: But then depending on, we'll, we'll talk about the targets. That's right.
2: Later. That that's, that's the real perversion and and the relatively new kind of drift to anti-fascism that I think is really unfortunate. And one of the reasons why I'm happy to be talking about this and analyzing this in public, because it is a serious problem where it's going and what's happening is a serious problem. In some sense, I think it's a large part because indirectly because of Trump in, in the following way that with the arrival of Trump, there was triggered this kind of mass paranoid hysteria of the fascists hiding beneath you know, the the friendly faces of the people, you know, in your workplace and your friends and family, everyone's, everyone's a secret yeah. fascist. Now everyone's paranoid about yeah. a secret fascism lurking behind everything. And I think that kind of mass paranoia going mainstream, going to the national level has now kind of filtered down into anti-fascist circles. And think about it, if you're an anti-fascist up until Trump, you've kind of been, uh, you know, a dedicated member of a really obscure kind of low status fringe, uh, radical left wing group. Now it's kind of cool if the whole nation thinks that fascism is a major threat because it increases your status right now. There are more legitimate targets that the public sees as legitimate for you to attack and to, and to, and to rebel against. And I think basically a lot of, um, legitimately, uh, kind of legitimately good natured anti-fascist people who actually really did set out to just fight fascism. They've kind of gotten carried away in large part because of the national paranoia about fascism.
1: Yeah. So there's a kind of mission creep that's happening where if in 2014 you're Antifa, you think fascism is like a very small problem and we must fight it. But then with Trump, you suddenly get the impression that, oh, my God, there's there's a lot more um, conservative views about immigration and nationalism and so forth than we realized Mm -hmm. right and so it seems like there's this colossal looming threat all of a sudden and of course the bigger the threat you're fighting the more status you tend to get that's right um
2: and the more justifiable it is to engage in you know breaking some eggs right yeah if you want if you know if there might be some collateral damage well you know it's not my fault that there's a national threat that needs to be
1: dealt with yeah Yeah, so um, and of course people will find it very hard to hear that because, you know, I'm neither a Trump supporter nor nor a Trump derogator I have very mixed feelings about all that, but anybody who follows me on Twitter knows I have very conservative opinions about some things very radical progressive views on on other things and I think that's kind of true for many Americans, right we're sort of a patchwork of ideas and that's why it's Uh, it's hard for the two-party system to kind of fight over the middle because um, it's a very confusing middle. Let's get very practical for a minute. So what is black block? Why do Antifa wear it? What does it typically involve? Um, Like, where do you buy it? Do you trade tips on what to wear? Um, What's the kind of functional rationale for why certain things are worn, stuff Mm -hmm. like that?
2: Right. So there are a few rationales, I would say, for the whole black bloc aesthetic. Probably the first primary one is just security culture is what it's called. Basically protecting your identity, remaining anonymous. There is there is a real purpose to that, because there are some people in the proper fascist kind of neo-Nazi communities who will look you up and find you where you live and fuck with you and your family. I mean, that has happened. That's legit. The prevalence of that is another question. I think it's, I think there's a lot of paranoia. There's not that many Nazis at all, but, but they do exist and, and they can do damage to you and your family, especially if you present yourself as like a militant anti-fascist. So that's probably just the main purpose is you want to make sure that none of the Nazis or fascists know who you are can, so they can't look up your face, can't look up your
1: identity. The second so it's, so it's anonymity to protect against the folks you're protesting against in terms of doxing. Is it partly also to protect against police? That
2: was going to be the next point. Yeah. yeah, that's another that's another major reason for the for the blocking up is it's not, not just because you don't want the police to know who you are or see your face, but in particular, it gains you a lot of tactical advantages as a group. So, for instance, if you and I are going out to resist some fascists in the street, if, let's say, you get arrested, then... <clears throat> I can actually pull you away from the cops. Me and a bunch of my mates, our yeah. mates can pull you away and when if we if I if we're able to physically detach you from the police, then the police don't know who did it. They don't even know the initial person they were going for. Right. So there's there's a kind of tactical logic where every individual blends themselves into the mass. So it's not right. so so one dimension is protecting your personal identity, another is the group level dimension where yeah. you know Um, It's kind of similar to, like, zebras, I believe, and and how the the logic of zebra stripes.
1: It's the camouflage of uniformity, right? And so whereas, like, in a pride parade, everybody would be trying to look as different as possible Mm. so they can express their individuality, in Antifa, you actually want to converge on uniforms so that the the cops will easily confuse you.
2: That's right. That's
1: right.
2: Okay. There's also, I would say, a bunch of other... Reasons which, you know, you could debate the, the prevalence or, or, or significance of the different reasons, but I'll just kind of give a few. One is definitely an aesthetic and a kind of uh, cultural affinity with just generalized norms of not taking credit for things. It's a very kind of anti-individualistic kind of aesthetic and, and political culture. It's just another reason is just that it fucking looks badass. I mean, yeah. doesn't it? It does. Like, yeah. it's, a, it's a it's a military uniform you know, putting on, putting on all black and covering your face. You know, if anyone listening has ever played like paintball or something like that, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's fun. You put on the gear, right. You put on like pads, you kind of wear like camouflage or whatever. And you have this like fake gun and you go out into the woods with your buddies. You know, it's, it's, you, you can feel the, the fun and the, and the, the psychological experience of basically going to war with relatively low stakes. And I think black block is absolutely one, one crucial reason for it is that you create that kind of, warrior team mentality that tribal mentality and it's fucking
1: fun (laughs) yeah so you know if any of the the viewers are like well i subscribe to guns and ammo magazine i can't relate to black box yes you fucking can because tactical right all black is kind of standard you know um swat team garb operator garb and and of course it's intimidating and and so it makes sense that, you know, the bad boys on the left and the bad boys on, on the right or even just the military and, and police would have a kind of convergence onto things that are intimidating. That's right. And, you know, you see this throughout military history. That's right. And
2: also it's, it's worth noting that the traditional flag for the anarchist tendency is a black flag. Yeah. So the, even in the color black, there's a lot of significance. It's, you know, it's kind of scary and intimidating and forceful, but it's also very blank, right? It's kind of the evacuation of color uh, in the sense of, you know, kind of removing all of the different individual, it's, it's a kind of like anti-individual signaling kind of
1: uh, it's aesthetic. A kind of, it's a kind of like anti-statist in sure, a way. Of course, it's like absolutely. the erasing of the national flag yeah. internationally. Yeah. So, so, so there's kind of weird libertarian element.
2: Absolutely. So this is something people probably won't understand or know people listening to this who aren't deep in these circles won't know some of these wrinkles. So I can actually back out some of this for you real quickly. There is a strong correlation between anti-fascism and anarchism, political anarchism, which is a kind of left libertarianism in some sense. And that's not accidental. You know, that is uh, the, the people who engage in militant anti-fascism are not a run of the mill leftist. Generally there, they tend to be anarchist, and uh that is a that's an important wrinkle because it's kind of it kind of goes back to something I was saying before about how militant anti-fascists are not the same as your typical radical left college student. You know, that there there are significant ideological differences. And as I was saying in, in the activist communities, these are major cleavages. So yeah. so it's 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 worth it's worth paying attention to that. It's kind of interesting though, and it's a bit contradictory, right? Because a lot of people see militant antifa today. as this kind of authoritarian force whereas in fact the the self-understanding of most militant anti-fascists is a kind of a kind of left libertarian against the state against authority in favor of kind of radically decentralized mass mass political
1: uh freedom or 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 action so yeah from the from the rights point of view it's very easy to confuse communists socialists anarchists etc yeah Um, And a lot of people say, oh, Antifa are just communist um, and a la Stalin. But you you would view it more as um, it's anarchist politics plus kind of recreational gang warfare.
2: A lot of them are communists also, but anarchist communists. So it's a kind of fine detail in the many pockets of the radical left. But basically they would say that they're generally against the state. Generally against forms of thor- various forms of authority in favor of radically decentralized mass mass freedom, but their political vision is essentially one of radical sharing, radical equality, and generally opposed to various forms of of also corporate control and corporate domination, which is seen as basically capitalism. So I would say the center. If I had to say, I would say the center of gravity ideologically for militant anti fascists in the Western countries is anarchist communism. Okay.
1: So that carries, I guess, over into how Antifa interact with the police. So the police would be viewed as the arm of the state. And if you're anarchist, you don't like the state, presumably. So when Antifa are going out to do a protest, are they kind of equally fighting against the alleged fascists and the cops? Or are the cops more like referees in this kind of gang warfare
2: i would say the the typical mentality of uh, militant anti fascists is definitely that they're going out not just against the fascists but against the state which they see as the police who are generally in coots with the fascists that's that's the overwhelmingly popular mentality okay. that the police are generally supportive and sympathetic to the to the fascists both and on a personal level that they lean right wing and they have kind of some sympathies for the fascists and they're particularly antagonistic towards the anti-fascists that that's the model most anti fascists have in in their mind when they go out to, to these types of events. What's interesting is that the fascists or the neo-Nazis or whoever is on the opposing side tend to think the same way about the police but reverse. They tend to think that the police are just courting the anti fascists and they, you know, the conservatives say this is crazy that the police allow these militant black blockers to uh roam the streets. So I would say um each each side tends to think that.
1: Yeah, so like both football teams think the refs are biased against. Exactly. Yes, that's right. That's right. Okay. Um, In terms of the communitarian aspect of this, you actually lived in a sort of communal house during grad school with other like-minded lefties. Mm -hmm. So you were kind of living this 24 seven for a while, I guess. Can you describe a little bit about kind of how does the home life of a far left person kind of relate to their Antifa activities. I know most Antifa probably aren't in these community right. houses, but some, right. some are, right?
2: Right. Sure. So when I was living in the big commune squat warehouse thing in Philly, that was before I was very active in militant Antifa. So that's a, just a little bit of a caveat, but I was, as I said, overlapping with those types of people and, and getting acculturated into, the, into that milieu. And I would say that generally the the communitarianism is actually one of the more defensible and desirable aspects of kind of the radical left uh, militantism, you know, there is an ethic of, of sharing and, and, a certain expectation of, you know, if you're in the club, if you're, if you're an anti-fascist and you, know, you, you will kind of do whatever you can for your comrades if they need a place to stay. So like, for instance, if, um, if there's like a fascist mobilization in our town, <laughs> and we're going to we want to help organize you know some kind of resistance all the people who come all the anti-fascists who come from out of town to help out you know they're going to have a place to stay it's just going to be there's going to be food there's going to be they're going to be taking people take care of each other you know and it's another really desirable quite defensible aspect to the whole kind of radical left uh milieus a lot of a lot of this is correlated somewhat with people who are already kind of living in in difficult straits and some poverty. And so so a lot of these people are already kind of used to um, sharing out, out of survival in some sense. Yeah. And, and again, that's not to put them down. It's actually kind of one of the more, one of, one of the more noble, I think, and attractive aspects. Um, a lot of some, some of the people in these communities are um, somewhat kind of homeless. Actually, there's a lot of kind of wandering kind of mm-hmm. vagabond types of individuals who, you know, um, might be down on their luck in, in various ways. And it actually does lead to a fairly generous and, and kind of equalitarian, practical communism that, I, that again, I, is one of the more defensible yeah. dimensions of it, which I was always drawn to. And to this day, I'm still drawn to it. in some sense. I mean, it's one of the things that brings me to Albuquerque. Like we're, we're trying right. to- I mean, we're, we're trying to build, our own yeah. little
1: communal house here with, exactly. with two couples. And, and um, that communitarian spirit, of course, is also something that uh, the religious right values a lot. It's more church-based rather than politics-based, but um, a sense of community and taking care of each other is actually something that kind of spans the political spectrum. It's just the way you look at it is either, oh, those people over in that house are doing an evil political conspiracy, or they're righteous souls who are on you know my side. Right. So I'm just what I'm trying to do in this video, of course, generally is try to get people to kind of understand Antifa as objectively as possible, not necessarily sympathetically, not necessarily, um, Mm -hmm. you know, against it, but there's so much bullshit on Twitter Mm -hmm. and social media about Antifa that seems poorly informed. So I, we're getting a lot of questions, comments. It looks like a bunch of people are watching this. Um, so we'll get to those in just a few minutes. Um, let's talk finally, though, before we do that, about kind of selection of targets. What does it take to get on Antifa's radar as somebody worth either a certain amount of violence or a certain amount of just um, stank eyes and 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 not mm-hmm. liking someone? Um, and what's happened the last few years in terms of kind of broadening the definition of anti FAS enemies.
2: Right. Right. So I think that's, that's the key problem right now that's happening. Not too long ago, I think militant antifascism was generally quite defensible. And the, the version of antifascism and militant antifascism that I would still defend, which I basically have been defending is the model in which if there is a physical threat in your community, then able-bodied people should go out and match that threat to defend the community. That the I would emphasize there the the physical threat to me that's the bright line that makes militant anti defensible. So, for instance, if there are actual neo-Nazis, people with swastikas on their arm, for instance, you know actual tattoos or you know d- documented histories of going to different communities, and you know you might see something you see as like these, some of these proper fascist mobs will go to communities and just get drunk and throw bottles at minority kids and stuff like that. You know, there are some serious fascists who are, they they represent a physical threat to people in your community. If that is the case, then yeah, sure. Go out and, and, and meet them, defend your community, physical self-defense for the community. What's happened over the past few years is what gets labeled fascism has been expanded. And so I've kind of got to see this firsthand at first, it might be actual neo-Nazi groups. Then it's kind of maybe some neo-Nazis are in this group, but they keep a formally non-racist or formally, you know, unimpeachable public face to the organization, right? That and and that that would be like the first step of of mission creep, and and it's a dip- this is a genuinely difficult problem because you are seeing over the past few years formerly properly racist people kind of reformulate their projects into kind of more pu- publicly palatable forms. Mm-hmm. So there is a real dynamic in which actually violent, nasty people who would, who, they and their people, or at least some of their people would do violence to you and your community. They are kind of hiding a little bit in some of the more defensible organizations. What happens then is if that if that more defensible organization, which on the public record has never explicitly endorsed racism or violence. If they come to your town to, or, to organize a rally, what do you do? That's the tricky question for fascists and uh, for anti-fascists. And I think anti-fascists, what's happened is that anti-fascists have, have unwisely taken the bait. So my personal attitude, my personal kind of position on this is that if an organization, no matter how much an organization sounds kind of racist, or might even have particular members who have histories of racism, if there is an organization that is on record as n- if they've never actually endorsed violence and they're not actually going to your community to do any violence, if they are not going to represent any physical threat, then you simply cannot retaliate to that with physical militant anti-fascism. That, that's my position. I think that's a very bright line. That's a clear definition of whether or not they're bringing a physical physical threat. What's happened is the, the anti-fascists have taken the bait. And in some sense, I think they've been strategically uh, pwned in some sense by these more clever Right wingers who kind of know that if they come into an organ, if they come into a community and they're not actually being violent, but militant Antifa, Antifa comes and they start being violent, that it's going to be a, lo- it's going to be a loss for militant Antifa. And in fact, mil- they're going to send militant Antifa down all of these paranoid rabbit holes where that all of a sudden militant Antifa are the ones attacking, um, relatively, um, innocent looking organizations. And I think that's, that's basically what's happened. And, and I think it's getting worse and worse because that bright line that I described of physical force. Yeah. Because that wasn't respected, and militant Antifa took the bait. Now there's a cult. There's no way to draw the line. Now anyone who's called a fascist, or you know, if there's enough whispers about some organization representing fascism, even if it doesn't even have anything to do with fascism, militant Antifa as a mob will go out and do it. Like a good example would be someone like Milo Yiannopoulos or something like this, right? Um, so, so yeah. Now I think we're in this kind of late stage, kind of terminal cancer for Antifa, where because they were not rigorous about how they drew the line for what deserves physical self-defense now it's just anything goes and militant antifa is constantly overreacting to threats that don't deserve militant physical um resistance that's that's kind of my theory of what's happened
1: yeah so let's make this super concrete so if you're in a sort of antifa planning meeting before a protest like you know on this date this other group will show up in this city roughly this area to what extent can you do they do fact checking like Mm. oh i've heard that this group has these beliefs or did this bad thing or even that this journalist is associated with the enemy Right. if you say hey guys wait a minute like we can protect our community as we see it but I think targeting that particular person or that group might be misguided Mm -hmm. is the response of the other Antifa to go um, man up what what the fuck are you talking about like we shouldn't fact check this or will they go hmm you might be right let's let's google it like how biased is their view on these things right
2: it's a great question you'd actually be surprised how much effort is put into intelligence and research and and reconnaissance in the anti-fascist communities there's actually a lot of it it's actually one of the one of the favorite pastimes of active militant antifa is to be constantly snooping around people's facebook profiles trying to survey the scene of of the various fascist threats and doing actual research into looking into these people. So in some ways there's actually, they put a lot of effort into that type of reconnaissance. The problem is confirmation bias and a variety of really perverse uh, psychological tendencies and group, group level incentives. So I'll break this down for you a little bit. One of the problems is that one way to get status or to increase your status in anti-fascist circles is to be a good fascist hunter. Right. So let's say you're good with computers, you're good with sleuthing around Facebook or whatever the case might be. You can kind of show off your intelligence and not just your intelligence, but your uh, commitment to the cause and your ingenuity by bringing to the group. Hey, folks, I have this new piece of research showing this. I have this new fascist on the radar. So by identifying fascist threats, you get credit as an individual in the group. So because that's highly rewarded to find fascist threats, you can see how this uh, very rapidly goes awry. The problem, and and I would say the complementary problem is that um, there is virtually no cost to misidentifying yeah. positively a fascist. So I actually wrote a blog post about this a couple of years ago about the two different types of errors that you know statisticians and social scientists distinguish between two different types of errors: false positives and false negatives. Basically, to avoid the technical jargon, and the, <coughs> one of the one of the systemically perverse problems with anti-fascism, which explains how we got to where we are today, is that People are strongly rewarded for identifying fascist threats. You know, you get applause. People like you, you're vigilant, you're, you're really noble and smart. But if you're wrong and you identify someone as a fascist who turns out later to actually not be a fascist, there's no punishment. There's no cost. Nothing bad will happen to you. And in fact, there's not really any even mechanism for ever doing that kind of post hoc checking or validation. Yeah. So it's easy to do the game theory there. You know, it's yeah. easy to see okay. how that's going to play out over time.
1: So you think it's quite likely that the Antifa who attacked um, journalist Andy No will have actually probably read some of what he wrote in Quillette or other outlets mm-hmm. or um, tracked him on social media. And so he's kind of a known enemy in their view. Mm-hmm. And, of course, everything that they read of his or discover or videos that they watch will kind of be assimilated into their view that he's already Probably a bad actor, right?
2: Oh, for sure. Yeah, the model there would be people look into someone like Andy Noe, and okay, maybe this guy's never said anything explicitly fascist, but they look to see who he's friends with, they look to see where he writes, and simply by by virtue of not being within the kind of anti fascist radical left milieu, that basically is incriminating. So the the model there would be this guy's not a particularly a fascist, but he supports, he, he basically enables fascism. Quillette enables fascism. Any kind of uh, cultural outlet that emerges in critical opposition to kind of like the left-wing orthodoxy, well, the only reason they could possibly be doing that is because they want that left-wing orthodoxy to fail because ulterior, they have ulterior motives of actually boosting and amplifying fascism, which they define as just whatever's not the left-wing orthodoxy. So in this twisted worldview, you know, someone like Andy Noe is a genuine kind of accessory to fascism, even if you can't find anything on record of him ever saying anything fascist. Yeah.
1: Okay. So you're with us or you're against us. And the, if you're Antifa, then it probably seems like you, you, you assume like 80% of America is against you mm. because, but why? Because they've been propagandized. They've been indoctrinated into a worldview that Antifa thinks is reactionary. And of course, ironically, the people on the right think that everyone's being indoctrinated into far left views and K through 12 public school and higher education and media and you know big tech companies and uh-huh. so forth. So each of the wings sort of assumes that the other dominates the public mindset. Is that accurate?
2: Yeah, for sure. There's a kind of symmetry there where they mirror each other, I think. And ultimately, I think that the really, really dark and twisted phenomenon is not particularly militant anti-fascism or the radical reactionary right, which is wildly overestimated. I mean, I've done blog posts on this also looking at the data. You know, social liberalism is um, overwhelmingly the dominant attitude towards, you know, um, various you know, uh, questions that, that, that are related to this, like questions of race, questions of ethnicity, questions of sexual orientation, social liberalism is uh, overwhelmingly the dominant attitude is far more popular. And, it, and it's been increasing since the sixties. Everyone knows this, right? If you look at things like gay marriage. Um, so the, the threat of the, of the <laughs> radical right, its size and people's mental image of it is is uh, radically miscalibrated with reality, I think. But I also have to say that I think the, the, some of the kind of anti-social justice warrior cultures also kind of overinflate the threat of militant antifa. So, you know, there there are definitely some idiotic and violent people in militant antifa who will do, you know, pretty stupid and, and very harmful shit. Like, you know, I think, uh, any type of, any type of physical assault whatsoever on people who are themselves not physically threatening anyone is is indefensible and there are militant antifa who will do that and i've already kind of disavowed that i think i think it's really dumb and bad that said it would be really interesting to see survey data within militant antifa because i would bet you that actually a majority of people who identify as militant anti-fascists would not support someone throwing you know various types of dubious chemicals or whatever the case supportive of free speech. Um, It's only a tiny minority that's authoritarian against free speech, but then all of the other pro free speech leftists just don't feel comfortable talking about it. So there's a silence of, there's a spiral of silence problem and we have data, we have data to show that and and, and anyone on the left knows that. Um, So I think the same thing is probably happening with Antifa. Like the average militant antifascist probably doesn't condone these types of idiotic harmful behaviors against Uh, relatively innocuous uh, quote-unquote threats so it's just something to keep in mind because it's easy. I I basically think the right and the left both do this kind of um, uh, unfair and inaccurate projection onto the other like you know the the, there are not that many people out there in the United States of America who think that you should throw milkshakes on reporters (laughs) you know Um, there's just not that many people at all that support that
1: so what do you think is the the reaction of Antifa to the Andy No attack? Some of them are probably going, fuck yeah, that's righteous. Some of them are probably going, that is terrible for our public image. That is regrettable. God damn it, Portland, get your act together. Mm-hmm. Or something in between, do you think? Yeah, no, that's right. My wager,
2: I would put my money on um, a solid majority, at least, thinking that even within militant anti-fascist people who go to militant to anti-fascist protests, I would wager that a majority of people think that no one should throw rocks or concrete or milkshakes at um, truly innocent reporters who have never endorsed yeah. any type of fascist, racist or sexist um, position. Um, it's just, there's going to be a few people who do that. And then the real problem is that no one on the left wants to really say, uh this is this is bad in public because then yeah. they'll see they'll be seen as a traitor. Um uh, and I think honestly I think you see the same thing, you see the same thing on the right. The really, the really twisted and dark, I think catastrophic like cultural and civilizational threat here is not either the left or the right. It's the game that they play together. Yeah. They're really they're really in this kind of dance together. And with no disrespect to Andy No, for instance, or the Quillette gang, who I, I read and 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 quite like in many ways with no disrespect, let's let's be honest about what's really going on here. There, there is a kind of mutually beneficial game going on. And, you know, for instance, you know, once he's recovered, I think he will probably be better off from this event happening to him, right? Assuming that he's not in any kind of serious physical damage that can't be healed, his followers are going to increase, his national profile is going to increase, his patron count is certainly going to increase. So let's not and this is not you know, impugning him or any anything like that. I'm not victim blaming blaming whatsoever. I'm just saying, let's be honest about the the underlying system at work here. both the the right and the left, when they when 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 the kind of militant or you know highly motivated wings of both camps, both camps kind of engage in this um indignant back and forth, you know, they're both playing their own games, and every inter every interaction uh, or every, you know, stage of the of the game playing it kind of rewards both sides. That's what's really dark about this, is, is that it's actually a game both sides are playing. I think that's what you saw in Weimar Germany, for instance.
1: Yeah. So it's kind of um, runaway partisan polarization, but it seems like it's fed quite heavily by social media. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you think social media has changed Antifa? Strategically, tactically, in terms of um, their relationship to, to the right and um, kind of how they think about culture and the world generally. It's a good question.
2: I definitely think it's accelerated the, the, the craziness and the, and the bad judgments and these, these kind of perverse incentive systems that I've described. I think social media has accelerated it because it gives more opportunities for people to signal their anti-fascist uh, credibility so you recently had a kind of funny episode. I forget the details of it because I try not to waste too much time paying attention to the nonsense. But, uh, there was recently this guy on the radical left, kind of in the like Chapo, Trop House, DSA circles who did this like big long expose of basically fascist people on Twitter and, and podcasts. Uh, all these people, like these fascists in plain sight, basically. And it basically lists a bunch of just pretty normal left wing podcasters who just, at all, you know, even slightly deviate from kind of the the anti-fascist party line. And it was like this long, super serious, you know, reconnaissance, white paper type of type of product that he wrote. And it was just such a laugh. I mean, uh, but it's an example of how social media increases opportunities for people to basically um, uh, find fascists even where where they don't exist. So there's that. Yeah, I think um, in other ways, yeah, it's interesting. I don't know. I mean, this type of event, like the situation with Andy Ngo and the, just this recent incident, it's kind of a it's kind of a feeding frenzy on both sides. I'm sure that anti the the really kind of toxic anti fascists who are kind of drinking from the Kool Aid that everyone's a fascist and this type of thing is acceptable. They're seeing this as like a victory, right? Look at all this attention look at what we did. We're really, you know, we're putting fascism under the spotlight and this is like a major win. They get to feel that and uh, they get, they get to feel like they did something good. And then on the other side, people like Andy, and the Quillette gang get to genuinely feel in, indignant and, you know, they're genuinely, they, they you know, they, they, they are, um, you know, the unreasonable targets of, of, of an assault. And yeah, I think both sides honestly eat it up.
1: Yeah. So just to, frame all of this discussion for those of you might have just joined us you know the point here is not to advocate antifa the point is to understand it and for the culture at large to have a better kind of insight into this little subculture so if you hate what antifa did and you want to destroy it you damn well better understand how it works because if you don't understand it you're fighting an enemy blind Right. It would be like if you tried to organize a D-Day invasion and you didn't bother to understand where the Germans deployed their forces. Um, Conversely, if you are in Antifa, I think it's important also to understand objectively what's happening in your subculture and to be kind of radically honest with yourself about it. And um, so that's that's the goal here is not to try to take um, sides, but try to provide useful information, whatever your um, kind of political goals and, and values are. Shall we turn to some comments and questions?
2: I would love to know what people are talking about. What's the vibe been, Ben?
1: Um, Some pretty, I guess, repetitive uh,
2: disagreement, I guess, particularly with you. Okay. Um, What's the main point of disagreement? Are people calling me uh, um, fascist or like an anti-fascist cuck?
1: I'd say more so the second. Okay. Yeah. I think earlier I saw some kind of questioning of, okay, how, how is it Antifa can think, well, this is our community and we're going to defend it by force if necessary against interlopers, against outsiders, right? Now, I think everybody on the right can relate to that, like the idea that <laughs> yeah. if the government came and tried to take your guns, fuck the government and we're going to fight. Right. Right. Or like the vigilante border
0: patrollers. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Or if if the border is unguarded, defend the border. If your family is being attacked by home invasion, stand your ground fight back. So that idea of protecting your tribe, your land, um, your ideals, your civilization, I think makes sense to a lot of people Mm. wherever they are politically. But if you have, you know, just outsiders kind of protesting like stop immigration. Antifa will see that as fascist adjacent, at -hmm. at least. How do you get from there to, oh, those people are a physical threat to my community?
2: Right. So my theory that I've kind of laid out here is that that bright line of physical threat has been washed away. So that's no longer the line. That's no longer the criteria. So anti-fascism now does not see itself as only resisting physical threats Okay. because the theory is now that fascism is hidden, it's diffuse. All the fascists now have, you know, uh, clean public images. So behind a perfectly innocent nonviolent organization, <clears throat> that's where the fascism is hiding. So they have to be treated as if they're a physical threat because that's what they, that's what their ulterior ulterior motives are. Okay.
1: So, in a way, though, you're bringing physical violence to a meme fight. That's right. You're defending against that's what I think you know, a corruption of the ideology that you see as righteous and good by people with different ideas, but you're doing it in the street rather than on social media or with documentaries or personal contact with people who Mm -hmm. don't share your views or Mm -hmm. stuff like that. Yeah. Um,
2: Yeah. You're bringing bike locks to a meme fight. Yeah, that's what's happening. I I, I think that's right, Ben. I want to know, like, what is the main critique of of the story I'm laying out? Let's
1: see. Um, there's a lot of talk about you being communist, radical, uh, (laughs) that kind of thing. People not like that. I did. I did have one question, which is, why don't more people on the left disavow? Antifa violence. For example, mm. as far as I know, we still don't have any of the twenty odd Democratic presidential candidates disavowing mm. Portland Antifa violence mm. against Andy. No, what is the cost of saying those those guys went too far?
2: Yeah, there's a major social cost, and there's no particular social benefit within the in group. Mm. It's the same. It's the same problem as Donald Trump's comments about uh, Charlottesville. Right. I mean it's not that surprising the signal he sends on that, right? I mean, there's no, for his in-group politics, you know, there's, you, you get social benefits for cheering on, or at least not criticizing, you know, the more overzealous aspects of your own group. And basically if you do disavow it, you only get one result, which is you lose friends and you lose status in, in the, in the community. And for a lot of people, I mean, the path that I chose was basically, to go all in on just saying the truth about everything I could find and to try to constitute a kind of identity and a milieu around that. Yeah. But not everyone has the opportunity to do like, I was lucky that I was successful in doing that relatively. So now I kind of like have no ideology and I just say whatever I think is true as, as honestly as I can. And I'm kind of known for doing that. And I have like a, a friendship group that has emerged because yeah. of the status I've gained from doing that. But most people aren't at a margin where that's possible. Most people are are at a, are at a margin where if they started telling the truth about what they see on the left from within the left, they're not going to reconstitute any kind of new identity or new social group. They're just going to yeah. be seen as, a, as, as vaguely fascist sympathetic. I mean, that that's really what it comes down to is like, if you question a, a particularly overzealous kind of stupid, harmful activity by a particular anti-fascist, it's not just like people you lose status. That's actually under that's understating the case you actually start to gain you. People start to imagine that you have some weird fascist sympathies Yeah, and you actually do run the risk of getting called fascist. You really do. That that's a real, that's a real thing.
1: So some of the, the comments said Andy, um, Andrew Yang actually apparently disavowed. I haven't seen that myself. I, t- I did do a direct message through Twitter pleading with him to disavow <laughs> the Antifa violence a day or two ago. So if he's done that, yeah, Andrew, um, But I think he's one of the more reasonable and less partisan candidates, and he's explicitly trying to reach out to the center Mm. and the independents in a way that most of the other Democratic candidates aren't. So Mm. no doubt this will cost him in terms of the left base. It might not be good for his Democratic primary chances, but I think it's setting him up, you know, for later, if he gets to that point mm. of being able to say to the, cent- the centrist and independents, look, I was the only one, the only one who took a stand about this. So we'll see how that plays out. Yeah.
2: Okay. I would love to answer a, a question or two, like a, a difficult pointed question about the one—the
1: the, one. story I was laying out.
2: Does Justin regret doing the anti-ethnic thing? I guess his wife makes this hard to answer, honestly. No, my wife doesn't make that hard to answer at all. And I would say that I don't regret anything I've ever done on behalf of or with militant anti-fascism because I always had a very clear criterion for what was legitimately resisted or counteracted with physical community self-defense. I only ever went to militant anti-fascist events or mobilizations when the people that we were mobilizing against were actual fascists who were going there to basically intimidate and get drunk and roam the streets violently. Like that's, that's the only thing I've ever, you know, uh, resisted physically in black block. And to this day, I, I would defend that. I don't think there's, I think, I think that's, that's a legitimate community self-defense. So I don't regret anything personally. I mean, there might've been actually, no, if I was, if I thought about it more carefully, there might've been some events that I went to where I was guilty of kind of this, this mission creep, Um, so I'm not, I'm definitely not saying I'm totally above it, but that, that was always fairly conscious to me.
1: Well, let's talk a little bit about kind of getting carried away in the heat of the moment for a second. So anybody who's been in anybody who's done combat sports or trained or done paintball or done like some munitions training Mm -hmm. at a shooting range, um, knows the crazy, crazy things adrenaline Mm. do. And it is very exciting. It's really fun. Um, but it also means the bright moral lines that you draw for yourself ahead of time can get blurred. Sure. That's a good point. Yeah. So to what extent do you think, uh, like in a, in a culture where everyone's recording everything on their smartphone all the time, you can see examples of crazy runaway violence and, and sit in the comfort of your living room and go, I would never do that. I can't mm-hmm. imagine ever doing that. And this is true whether it's violence from the left or the right or the center, anybody. Um, so there's kind of a kind of an empathy gap between normal, sober, unadrenalinized state and being in the thick of it with the cops and the tear gas and mm-hmm. the noise and mm-hmm. the enemies and the dynamic you know, group movement. Um, what's important for onlookers to kind of understand about that?
2: That is a good point. So f- for instance, with this recent incident, it's perfectly plausible and perhaps even likely that whoever threw that stuff on Andy Noe and messed him up physically was actually, you know, they never went there planning to assault a journalist. <laughs> you know, they actually went there. Perhaps they had these, you know, projectiles or whatever they're using they had these substances which they brought in you know potential self-defense you know just in case some proper fascists attack us we'll have this right but then things get heated things get escalate and then this guy looks like a good target to punch um kind of mentality definitely that that can that can that can happen no doubt there's also an, an interesting phenomenon where in crowds there's a lot of research on this right in crowds there's a certain diffusion of responsibility that happens yeah and you don't know what you're capable of doing within a hotly mobilized crowd if you haven't been in one, you know, so there is a sense in which you lose, you lose um, a sense of the costs you, you feel kind of free to do whatever. And it does get, it does, it can get you kind of carried away. It's a particular psychological phenomenon. You know, you become kind of possessed by this, by this freedom of the crowd. And people have written a lot about that. And, and and that's real. I, you know, I can testify to that. So, Yeah, in some sense, this type of, this type of incident is a kind of relatively impersonal, non conscious, kind of stochastic, uh, event that just emerges from this type of public confrontation where you have militant anti fascists going into a space. You have, you know, free speech journalists going into a space. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the probability of some individual incident like this happening. Is probably probably gets quite high, even if no one had no one set out with that intention. Yeah. So yeah, that's a nice wrinkle to that. That that that's a nice wrinkle for understanding the, the underlying psychology, because the the naive psychology, which a lot of people fall victim to, and including you know the the free speech communities that I'm quite sympathetic to, that I'm uh, belong to in some in some sense, we see this sort of thing where innocent person is being assaulted by militant anti and we become indignant, and we imagine in our own heads. I think everyone can testify this. You imagine in your own head there's an evil cabal of you know, militant anti-fascist leaders who are like planning these sinister attacks on uh, independent journalists, you know, but it's not, that's really not the model. That's really not, there's, there might be a few people that are kind of thinking like that and planning like that, but this is mostly kind of non-conscious systemic phenomena that are just playing themselves out through relatively unwitting bodies.
1: Yeah. So what might've happened, I imagine is a certain percentage of Portland Antifa may have known Andy know by sight or known his his writing and been a little wary of him mm-hmm. as sort of potential enemy mm-hmm. and then once you get kind of riled up um then you, you might bring him into the category of actual enemy worth attacking once you're sort of gang psychology That's right. That's a that's
2: that's a much more plausible model in the absence of other information. Obviously, who knows in any particular case? But without you know confirmed actual information about the individuals involved, that would be the most likely model that you should have in your mind when you see this sort of thing. Another thing I would add, which is I think is crucial for people to understand, is you never know what happened beforehand. And with when when responsibility is so diffuse and distributed, that cuts both ways. Not only do you feel more emboldened to do something you otherwise wouldn't do that's violent, but things might be happening to you and you don't know who's doing them. So that's a major problem. So it's possible that in this type of event, in this type of conflict, there might have been a couple neo-Nazis somewhere off in the background, like throwing rocks at that Antifa, right? Like that, that, that happens. It's not totally unheard of, even if that threat is, is overhyped. And so if you just got hit in the shoulder with a rock, but you don't know who that, who threw it, right? Yeah. Well, you know, what do you do in that, in that situation? If they're, often these things are very phys- physically distributed, right? So the Antifa are relatively in one area, the non-Antifa, therefore the fascists are kind of relatively in another area. And so if you just got hit by a rock and you don't know who did it, but it came from over there, yeah. well, you kind of feel uh, justified in throwing something back at whoever you happen to hit. So that there's a lot of that that goes on also. So
1: yeah.
2: it doesn't, by the way, this doesn't excuse any of it. It's just, it's a more realistic model. And I think it's important to not allow yourself to fall into the trap of imagining some like evil, sinister bogeyman that isn't, that often isn't there.
1: Yeah. So just to be clear, like neither of us are excusing anything that was done dandy. No, we're we're we're, we're totally free pro free speech. Um, We, but we think if you actually want to prevent that kind of thing from happening again to other bystanders or journalists or people on either side of these protests, it's important to descriptively understand it, like to bring to bear like my psychology and your political science and try to get to the root of it, um, partly so that the protesters themselves um, keep in mind certain dangers and risks and ways of getting carried away, partly so the police can manage these events better, and partly so onlookers and journalists and just ordinary folks on Twitter and social media just are smarter about how they talk about this stuff in a way that's actually aimed at trying to help solve the problems yeah. rather than just um, demonizing anybody.
0: Absolutely. And I would only add to that more specifically that
2: what's really the underlying problem that will truly destroy a country or a civilization is the system of the, the left and the right in this mutually escalating in some sense mutually self-rewarding cycle that, you know, it looks like a hate relationship, but it's actually a love hate relationship that, that is what is super dangerous because there's virtually no limit to it. It's, it's constant positive feedback. And that's why I think what you really want is accurate models. And And look, ultimately most of the time, the the truly accurate or most rigorous plausible model of something, I hate to break it to you folks. It's just not the most exciting or most, you know, um, energizing interpretation. It's usually, it usually pours cold water on whatever you're emotionally excited interpretation that that you want to have, you know? So I, but ultimately, yeah. I mean, I think if we have any chance, if we have any chance of kind of staving off the, the real threat of where this is going, it's going to be, it's going to be through people having a truly nuanced and rigorous model of what's really happening. Because when you have that model, you don't get so uh, paranoid. You don't get so emotionally angry and, and you don't um kind of contribute to problems that you that you don't even really understand my real my my real fear is that um you know because of this kind of like overactive overzealous militant antifa my real fear is that that's going to end up capturing the more intelligent rational wings of the free speech community into their own kind of uh paranoiac um motivated reasoning that in fact actually just gets almost addicted, you can, you can almost get addicted to your enemies, um, to the point that you want them to do more damage to you, because it increases your views, and it, it makes you feel more indignant. That's, that's the interlocking system, I really want people to be aware of the problem is this sort of theory or model that pours cold water on both sides, emotional yeah. energy, yeah. it tends not to get the most views, or it's, it's not the sexy, shareable thing. But it, you know, I think it's, it's the truly, it's what's truly in the public
1: interest. I saw some questions a little while ago about, but isn't Antifa entirely funded by George Soros or corporate interests or any of that? Could you comment? So there's a lot of um, attributions about Antifa and like who's supporting it. Uh, Can you shed any light on, on that?
0: Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I
2: can only share my own experience. Maybe there is a kind of well-funded, <laughs> luxurious, anti-fascist sect somewhere who's getting uh, sweet checks from George Soros. But if that is the case, I've never met them. And in my experience with in different anti-fascist groups, people are poor. There's not much money for anything, and it, it's a struggle to it's a struggle to fund anything. So there might be weird cases I'm not familiar with, but. It's overwhelmingly the case, as far as I can tell, that militant anti-fascism is uh, totally bootstrapped, community self-funded. To the degree it even requires funding, I mean, there's not much funding required.
1: So you're getting your black bloc from thrift shops, not yeah. from like a big Soros uh, uh, semi-trailer rolling up and I, distributing.
2: As I said, there, there might be some sources of funding somewhere, but I'm I'm not familiar with any such thing. So, yeah, yeah. that's, that's a bit of a conspiracy theory, I think.
1: That's a question about, um, what, what should police do differently? Or it was a little bit higher up, um, policing suggestions. What do you think police should understand about Antifa mm. that might be helpful?
2: You know, I think I genuinely have still enough of an anti-police mentality that, yeah not especially interested in giving advice to the police, to be honest. Uh, I mean, I'm interested in the public interest. I'm interested in, you know, uh, maximizing everyone's peace and safety ultimately, Mm -hmm. but uh, yeah, not to sound too ideological, but uh, just not, not exactly my cup of tea.
1: (laughs) But you think the burden should be on the police to do this smarter and better. And if they are in fact, not fascist wings of the state, then maybe they should just, Um, intervene earlier? It's a good question. It's a good question. I mean, I know very little about like (laughs) policing tactics for public protests. um, And I've only seen a few myself.
0: I think
2: if you support free speech and you support um, a well-defended right to the freedom of assembly, I think you have to bite the bullet that there's going to be a possibility of assault. Yeah. To be frank. I think that if if you're a free speech person and you want the police to clamp down on more like preventative policing to stop anti-fascist attacks,
1: mm-hmm.
2: I don't I don't think that's really tenable. Um,
1: I so think, there's, yeah. There's like a trade-off where you could have 100% effective policing at stopping all this violence, but then it would be extremely oppressive policing that might also shut down a lot of free speech activity.
2: For sure, for sure. Okay. Yeah, there's definitely a trade-off there. And um, I think there's... A, I think there's a little bit of truth to both sides. Remember I said before that the left or the anti-fascists tend to think that the police are sympathetic to the fascists and the fascists tend to think that the police just enable uh, and kind of handhold these like militant anti-fascist mobs. Um, I think there's a little bit of truth to both of those perspectives only because at the end of the day, police are just getting paid to do their job and they don't really, a lot of them don't have much experience with this sort of stuff. It's not so common that police on the police force have most of them don't have a lot of experience with this stuff. It's still, it's still relatively rare enough that the average person on the police force doesn't really have that much experience. And so they're just trying to, you know, it's like with most things the 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 underlying model or theory is not that interesting. It's like, they're just people trying to do their job and uh, they're trying to like, not, uh, do something that they're going to get punished for. Right. So they're not they don't really care either way. They're just basically trying to um, do the best they can to minimize violence um, and any kind of like bad, bad media.
1: Yeah. I know, I know um, people who do training with police to deal with things like um, the homeless having mental illness issues. Right. And I also know social workers who, who deal with the homeless here in Albuquerque. And what you typically find is the social workers have methods of de-escalating potential conflicts with kind of crazy people Mm. in real time that the cops don't have. Mm. And there's been a push to try to get like Albuquerque police better trained up to deal with these scary situations with unpredictable people where they don't have the personal experience or training to manage that. Mm -hmm. And it seems like you can make a pretty uh, rapid improvement in ways of dealing with the mentally ill. Mm-hmm. Um, I imagine you could potentially do the same with protests where I, I don't know how many police academies actually do good training on your typical Antifa tactics here, are typical mm. proud boy tactics, you know, here's how right. keep, try to keep everybody safe. Right. Um, but I imagine in these situations, all three groups, you know, Antifa alleged fascist cops, mm-hmm are kind of frightened and they feel like this could easily escalate, get out of control. I'm threatened. I'm getting hit with projectiles. Mm -hmm. And maybe you end up seeing both of the other groups as the enemy. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah. Well, one thing I guess I could give a little bit that people might find interesting is a little bit of more concrete detail about what, what the police tend to do in practice. And one kind of common tactic, I think probably that, the most common tactic that police try to do is they try to separate through cones and tape and whatever, you know, and and also physical um, manning, you know, manning physical lines, basically, to basically not let the anti-fascists and the fascists be next to each other. Um, and, you know, I think actually it's a, it, it's actually a difficult question if you're radi- if you're into radical free speech. Because if you really want a robust freedom of assembly, I think personally you should have to let fascist and anti fascists you know, move around each other. You know, you can make arguments that, you know, there's an overriding public interest in preventing violence or something like that, but that's actually not an obvious, not, it's not an obvious question as to how you come down on that. Um, and so, yeah, there's, a, it's kind of funny sometimes in some anti-fascist mobilizations, like the police will kind of try to cordon the anti-fascist, like black block or whatever, and will kind of succeed. But sometimes there's a little bit of a, You know, like, if if I'm, like, a smaller guy and and some, like, big guy attacks me, I'll, like, you know, say, let me at him. Let let, let me at him. Jeffrey's, you know, hold me back, Jeffrey. Hold me back. There's a little bit of that sometimes with anti-fascism. It's like, man, if we could just get at these huge, muscular Nazis, we would really show them. But, unfortunately, we can't get out of this box that we're in from the police. Um, Yeah, so there's kind of weird, funny little things like that you see sometimes. I don't know. I I, I haven't thought much about the policing question just because I don't put myself in the shoes of... Of police, I mean, yeah, I, I've had bad experiences with police, so that's my bias. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, so to kind of wrap stuff up before we get to a few more questions. Um, we've talked about kind of the psychology of gangs and tribes and kind of group combat and the excitement of going to these protests and and blocking up, wearing the black block and you know the uniforms and dealing, um, you know, with the enemy gang. Mm-hmm as a sort of simulated warfare, it's a little bit kind of combat LARPing, but it's Mm -hmm. also kind of real. Um, We've talked about how the groups on both sides are often familiar with each other. They have a history. Individuals often have a history with other folks on the other side. Like he hit me way harder than was appropriate three months ago. So I've been waiting for some, get some comeuppance we've talked about how that kind of gang warfare mentality gets supercharged by the ideology and politics, which are mostly um, anarchist more than typical communist. And I guess more than typical intersectional kind of identity politics. Right. Mm. Um, And, you know, the, again, the overriding point here is understand these social dynamics so that, they can be made um, safer with less blowback and fewer side effects and fewer injured journalists in the future. Okay, so if you have a question you're you're dying to ask, we can only see like the most recent 20 or 30, please resend it if you think there's something, you know, you're excited about us addressing right now. Whole point of live chat, live streaming is the liveness. (laughs) Everybody needs to join the society for creative anachronism. Yeah, that might, that might be helpful. What did it say? Um, so the SCA is where you dress up in your, your medieval armor and you whack each other with the, the two-handed um, swords. And, and you don't typically have big group melees, and there's no political dimension to it, though.:
2: Okay, a few people. A few people asked the question why does Antifa not protest radical Islam? Okay, mm-hmm. people are seconding that. So that's a good question. This is something I've thought a lot about and I've actually written a little bit about it. It's a really good question because you would imagine, right, that you know there are radical Islamists in the Western countries who are explicitly promoting quite reactionary, oppressive positions, whether it be against homosexuality or against women or whatever the case might be. So there's a reasonable expectation that all these militant anti-fascists should, you know, engage in physical resistance against the threat of reactionary Islam. And why don't they do that? Well, there's obviously a countervailing pressure, right? And the countervailing pressure is kind of the uh, deference and support for deference to and support for uh, minorities, right? So there's a, there's a weird kind of intersectional game going on where the reactionary threat of radical Islam uh, is relatively underweighted in the scheme of priorities of the radical anti-fascist relative to the the threat to to um, brown people in in Western Western countries. So that's clearly that that's a simple kind of descriptive statement. Just in the psychological priorities, the 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 threat to innocent racial minorities is valued higher than the threat of of radical islam i think one of the i thought a lot about like what is the what it, what are the conditioning variables like what what causes a particular threat to get overweighted or underweighted in this like intersectional scheme what like what's the underlying set of weights and i think here in this there, there are kind of two variables that matter a lot one is that um migrants and immigrants which obviously aren't just uh you know, from Muslim countries, but there's, there's some, there's some overlap there, at least in the, in the imagination, my Mig- migrants and immigrants are, um, actual loyal bodies for the kind of radical left project. Generally, uh, immigrants into Western countries tend to lean, uh, to the left wing parties. So there's a kind of, uh, fear of alienating the average, uh, person of color voter whether that be a domestic uh citizen or um, or a migrant and i think so that that's one answer to the question there's a kind of uh unspoken strategic alignment between antifa and the radical left project and um various racial minorities just as as voters and as bodies um so i think the militant antifa being applied to radical islamist speakers would upset that yeah. really important crucial kind of alliance
1: yeah
2: that that's you know uh one thing i would say that seems to be going on and uh
0: you have so, something
1: to- yeah there There's kind of a strand of questioning I, w- I want to address which is how antifa views political history um one question was are antifa stockpiling guns um, a related question I have is, does Antifa think the history of political progress has been mostly fought in the streets? That the really key changes were American Revolution, French Revolution, 1848, um, 1917, mm-hmm. Russian Revolution, 1968, anti-war protests. Mm-hmm. Is there kind of a sense that the way you affect historical change? politically is protests often violent protests.
2: Yes. So on that question, yes, then remind me about the gun question and we'll circle back to that.
1: But the the
2: question there is, there is a overriding ideology that it's very common on the, the anti-fascist left, the militant anti-fascist left that physical resistance is ultimately the only thing that works mm-hmm. and that negotiating never works. Compromise never works. Debate never works. It's a, it's a real point of, of absolute kind of ideological pride and the 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 historical memory or the model people have uh, of the history is that anti-fascism militant anti-fascism is the reason why nazism and you know italian fascism didn't spread so so there's there's a kind of folk empirical historical tradition but what's interesting is when you look at those cases and you look at that data it's never really been demonstrated there's a bunch of really influential antifa books that uh that tell the history there's like the, an anti-fascist history history tradition and it's all qualitative it, none of it really does any social scientific tests that that, that are at all um, legitimate but it's so it's very bar- cherry-picked data but the, but there is it's a good question because there is a widespread meme that in history there's proof that that militant resistance on the street is the only thing that ever stopped fascism and they see that as like the reason why fascism didn't take over the world because of brave courageous anti-fascists who fought in the streets I think actually there's a plausible case to be made that it's exactly the opposite. And that fascism, the worst forms of fascism actually took off precisely where there was the most physical resistance. I don't have the data to back that up, but I have some intuitions that of that, because if you look at like Weimar Germany, for instance, you know, Hitler's group, like the the Nazis got a lot of their energy and motivation and appeal from the massive anti-fascist resistance and the different, the different like street battles that were going on. In some sense, it was, the insecurity and discomfort with all the street fighting that made people really want a strong authoritarian leader to put an end to it all. So yeah, I think, I think you can make actually the opposite case quite plausibly, but if you're a grad student in the social sciences, this is an excellent project to dig your teeth into, because as far as I know this hasn't been adjudicated empirically.
1: Yeah. So this must be frustrating to you because you're a very quantitative social scientist, political scientist, and you like, you're actually writing an ebook on how to analyze the general social survey, you know, quantitatively with Mm -hmm. our statistical package, Mm -hmm. et cetera. um, What I've seen is a little bit of a hint that, on average, um, violent political revolutions don't succeed as well as nonviolent ones. But I can, you know, there's counterexamples. You're citing the Erica Chenoweth data, I think. I believe I am. Yeah, yeah. Um, Probably third hand.
2: Yeah, yeah, there is some empirical literature suggesting that nonviolent revolutions get the goods better than violent revolutions. There's there there are some sophisticated critiques, of that, so that's why I'm not totally I'm to- not totally sold on that. But I'll tell you this: there's certainly not empirical evidence of the overwhelming anti-fascist folk knowledge that militant resistance works.
1: Yeah. Okay. Um <clears throat> Antifa murdered twenty million Russians. Um, what's your view on? skeptics or conservatives kind of lumping in like Antifa and, and Stalinists. Obviously they have somewhat different political ideologies and agendas and contexts, but do you think there's a kind of overlap of goals in that, like if Antifa succeeded and kind of reshaped society the way it wants Would they have the internal limits not to do a Stalin-esque holodomor Mm. or a kind of Khmer Rouge killing fields or a Maoist cultural revolution? Or do you think they're not even really thinking about those dangers?
2: No, well, they're certainly not thinking about those dangers. So there's certainly no plans for those types of things. That would be kind of silly conspiratorial thinking. But I also would affirm there are certainly no internal limits. I don't think there's there would be any way to stop that type of thing happening down the line. That's exactly the problem with kind of what what's rotten about the radical, like when radical left ideology goes dishonest and rotten. This is exactly the problem that there is no limit. There's no criterion for stopping that sort of thing. Um, And I think you are. So I think fears about this are not totally misplaced. I think it's just worthwhile. You have to have the right model. You can't imagine that there's like a conspiratorial will to have these things. No, nobody wants these things. Most people in all times and places are basically just trying to do the good thing, but it gets twisted by person incentives and group psychology. And so that's real. I think the threat is real. There is no way that that would be able to, they'd be able to self limit themselves, but at the same time, you know, you'd be stupid to think anyone wants that or is anyone's trying to organize that.
1: So back to the gun thing. Um, If Antifa are out for anarchist revolution, are they actually, Stockpiling weapons the way maybe the Black Panthers did, or a lot of violent communist revolutionaries did, or can they just not afford them, or they think that would be the PR would be too bad. Like yeah. it would be just too harmful to the cause if we actually brought guns to a meme fight.
2: So I, I could I could say a few things here. It, unfortunately, we don't have good survey data on what militant anti fascists really think about things like guns. So this is all a bit conjectural. But my sense is that most militant antifa in some sense it depends it depends how you define that. Like are we talking about anyone who goes to an anti-fascist mobilization or are we talking about the people that are blocked up and like really down to fight? My sense is that my sense is that the people that are really down to fight, the, the really physically mobilized militant antifa, are going to be generally more sympathetic to um, arm you know communities arming themselves kind of like the Black Panthers did, there's definitely a kind of sympathy for that among the more militant, physically oriented ones. But the average person at, a, at an anti-fascist mobilization, the average person is is anti-gun, is, is pro-gun control, would be my wager for sure. Now, there's an, interesting, there's an interesting wrinkle here because there is a kind of growingly public presence of pro-gun anti-fascists. There's a particular group in the South called Redneck Revolt. I don't know if you've ever heard of them. They're kind of repping the they're kind of like the first group to really rep publicly a kind of pro gun militant, anti-fascism. I think it's actually quite interesting. I tend to be personally, I'm, I'm pretty sympathetic to the second amendment rights. So I think uh, that's my own attitude. And so to, to the degree I, I, defend a kind of reasonable based anti-fascism. I'm kind of, I kind of think it's cool that, um, you know, I think communities should probably be able to defend themselves. And, you know, I think with a, with a accurate and reasonable definition of actual fascism, you know, I I think it would be good to see armed, um, based anti-fascism.
1: Yeah. So just to remind viewers, like the political violence that we're seeing in America now is bad, but, but there are these kind of almost like consensually defined limits on it that like, Mm. um, it's okay to throw shit and it's okay to bring crowbars and, even the milkshaking, it's gotten into the realm of chemical warfare a little bit lately, <laughs> allegedly. But what you don't see is pitch street battles with firearms mm-hmm. yet. And I hope we don't get to that point. Is there anything that could tip that, the balance into that kind of, not necessarily a civil war, but kind of conflicts that are really escalated in terms of lethality? So
2: this is obviously conjectural, but this is exactly what I was saying about the, the, the mutually reinforcing feedback system at work here. To me, that's the real threat. So what you could imagine, for instance, is um, if these types of stupid, harmful, militant Antifa attacks keep occurring, you could imagine the kind of pro-free speech, anti-Antifa groups forming their own militias. Right. I mean, if you think that militant Antifa is this like conspiratorial cabal trying to take over the government with guns funded by Soros, like this type of model that people have in their mind that's so fearful of militant Antifa could in its own way be one half of precisely what escalates us to the worst to the worst levels. And that's why I'm trying to kind of pour cold water on the left and the right, because that's the only way I think you can deescalate from these sorts of things happening. So, yeah,
1: that's what we're trying to do here (laughs) is kind of trying to foster mutual understanding a little bit, not to excuse any bad behavior, but to try to avoid things tipping over into that point. So as one of the commentators said, all it takes is like one or two guys with guns on one side to go on a shooting spree at a protest for the other side to react and overreact and and arm up. Yeah. That I think would be really bad for for, you know American political discourse. Yeah,
2: precisely. I think that's where you get to the worst possible outcomes is by a a positive feedback system between the worst parts of militant Mm anti-fascism and the most fearful and empirically inaccurate models in the minds of normal, pro-free speech, anti-violence types of people. Because then, you know, it's very easy to see how um, the a most the most good-natured person who hates violence and wants to prevent any type of violence can become the real motor force of violence. Because once you think you're doing self-defense against violence, anything goes. And that's exactly what anti-fascism is. That's exactly the problem. These people who will throw milkshakes or throw rocks or whatever, um, they see themselves as preventing violence. And that's why it's justified to, to them. So if you start thinking that militant antifa is this like violent force taking over the country and You know, once you start thinking like that, you're going to become part of the system that escalates to like the worst places a civilization can go. So that's why ultimately, I mean, my my final two cents on all of this is that the left and the right are currently locked into such a profoundly um, disorienting and and harmful um, kind of two way dance that the 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 only real option at this point is what I call a kind of post political option which is you focus on telling the truth about all things in your life to anyone who will listen and you do nothing other than that. And all of these games, these motivated reasoning games and fears and bogeymans that both the left and the right love to get amped about, don't under any condition allow yourself to get pulled into that. And the more people can do that and the more we can create intellectual cultures where you don't have to take a side and you don't have to have some like really sexy, emotionally motivated talking point or, or team that you're playing on, the more we can cultivate that kind of culture, the more we're we're going to deescalate precisely what's most toxic about all of this. That's my view anyway. Yeah.
1: Good. I think we're going to wrap it up there. I know you, you guys had a lot of questions. I'm delighted. We, we got a pretty good, um, viewership on this. I hope you'll, um, share this. If you found it interesting, um, thanks to everybody who is a subscriber on my channel, please join more. We'll probably have some more video, um, even later this week. And um,
2: yeah, we're going to do lots of stuff like this on my channel also, which I I put a link in the, we put a link in the description of this. So subscribe to my channel also, and we're going to be doing stuff like this on both of our channels, kind of alternating and uh, seeing what we come up with. So yeah, thanks for hanging out with us. And did you want to get any uh, thought on the record before we wrap it up? You were, you were so kind to ask me questions mostly the whole time. Do you have a kind of Jeffrey Miller final note on all of this?
1: I actually, I, I really enjoy just being kind of, as objective as possible an interviewer for, for this, because I don't know a whole lot about Antifa. Um, I have tweeted a lot against Antifa in the last few days, as some of you will have noticed. And so I'm not sympathetic to them, but um, I do have this psychologist's view of the world that the better you understand people, the better you can um, change their behavior. If that's what you want to do. If you don't understand them at all, their motives, their motivations, the games they're playing, what excites them, what they're frightened of, you are not going to have any leverage for changing their views. So that's that's my my plea for more objective scientific insight into this kind of political realm.
2: Nice. I can already sense that all the free speech, like, Quillette crowd people are going to call me Antifa cuck, and all the uh, right. anti-fascists and leftists are going to call me a fascist sympathizer so you can't sometimes sometimes you can't win but yeah no i hope i I hope i didn't seem like i was too strongly pro antifa because in some sense ben's said no that's good i mean if if i if i sounded somewhat pro somewhat you know biased in favor of antifa it's just because that's the harder position to take right now and i always think that's the most productive thing to take like it would be so easy to just fire up the mic with you and get all like we love Quillette, we love free speech, we yeah. hate all these like stupid all the 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 patently stupid and violent and harmful tendencies that are taking over on the left. I mean, I could do that all day. Uh, we could easily do that and that'd be fun and I'd probably get you all wild up and you know you'd you'd enjoy it and feel motivated. But I think we're trying to do something different, you know, we're yeah. trying to do something better and, and more objective and bigger. So I was for what it's worth, folks, if you think I'm an Antifa cuck, I was trying very hard to be as sympathetic to be as sympathetic as possible to antifa because as jeffrey was saying i think we both share that view that um if you are really worried about a problem and you really want to figure out how to unwind it then you actually need to be as empathetic to it as possible you need to really try to understand it from the inside out and that ultimately means having a kind of uh cultivated sympathy that's required for understanding anything so that's what i was trying to occupy for this conversation just to be perfectly clear i'm not um you know i think i got nothing but good things to say about andy no and the whole like Free speech, anti-antifa tendency. I I understand it, you know, very well. And you know, I'm. And, and if anything, if I have like a group membership at the moment, I tend to be like. I think I'm more widely read by people in the anti-antifa crowd. I mean, all the antifa people think I'm think I'm like a fascist neo reactionary traitor. I mean, that's like the, That's the common talking point. On it's like, even
1: worse, you're Catholic.
2: Yeah. Right? So so I mean, so if people think I'm an antifa cuck from this from trying to give a, a sympathetic realistic model of what's going on with them. Let me assure you, you're totally wrong. For you know, the overwhelming majority of anti-fascists or kind of just leftist intellectuals on the internet, I'm persona non-grata. So
1: yeah. So Andy you No, know, hope hope you get better soon. Um Andrew Yang, if you've disavowed Antifa, yay, thank you. Appreciate <laughs> it. Um Thanks to subscribers, and we'll see you again soon. Have a great day.
0: Over now. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you thought that was cool, then don't forget to subscribe and it would be even cooler if you left a review. I'd appreciate that. And yeah, just to learn more about what I'm up to, you can check out theotherlifenow.com. That's all. And I will see you around the internet.